You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today, my guest is Kevin Hassett, who was former chairman of President Trump's Council of Economic Advisors. His new book, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism, will be published tomorrow. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, Kevin. Good to have you. Oh, it's great to be back, David. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the the premise uh, of your book that uh, America's on a path to socialism. I'd like you to just give us what you see as the evidence of that. From what I read, we still have what sure looks like the most dynamic capitalist economy in the world. Our growth has been above 6% recently. Yeah, interest rates are, are low. Um, uh, investment seems to be picking up. Uh, that looks like a pretty resilient capitalist economy to me, but you're obviously concerned. Explain why. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, we certainly aren't all the way there yet. Uh, but I think that the key observation is that, uh, you know, Joseph Schumpeter back in the 20s looked forward to America. He, he was writing about it in the 70s or 80s. Uh, where he basically saw an America in the future that would be very prosperous, but that would sow the seeds of its own, uh, the destruction of its capitalist system. And if you look at, uh, and I go into this quite a bit in the book, if you look at Shepherder's idea of what the world would look like, you know, it very, very much looks like the world of today. And we'll, I will talk about specific policies in a second. But basically what he said was, as we get richer and richer, then Americans are going to send their kids to colleges and universities much more. And colleges and universities are going to be hotbeds of socialism. And he had this whole sort of delightful chapter about why professors tend to uh, be socialists. Uh, But they're going to indoctrinate our kids to be socialists at the universities. They're going to control respectability. The best students will go on to have jobs like yours, David, and and, uh, have major influence over the major media. And before you know it, the sort of socialists, the indoctrinated socialists will control the media and they'll control the universities uh, and they'll make defenders of capitalism disreputable. Uh, and uh, Schumpeter writes in the end that he thinks that uh, that they'll, capitalism will die because there'll be nobody left uh, to defend it. And so I think that, that that's kind of like, I think of the book really as being kind of two parts. It's kind of like a long bar conversation really with any one of my friends who wonders what the heck are you doing working in the Trump administration? You know, the first part is what was it like? Uh, And then how did the world respond uh, to what it was like? And then what's the big picture story um, for why the world responded that way? And and, and so I think that the Shepherder's view of this sort of gradual drift towards socialism and the big institutions that form and, and um, beliefs that form uh, because of it sort of explains a lot of the the backlash against against uh, Donald Trump. Now, now the it's you're absolutely 100% uh, right. Sort of an insinuation of your question that a lot of people don't know what socialism is, and they call anything that's sort of a mildly progressive policy socialist, and that's completely false. Like so, socialism. Uh, is the government control uh, of the means of production or the government uh, delivering uh, products to people without like the use of the price mechanism. And um, there are socialist proposals in the U.S. that are extremely socialist, like, for example, Medicare for all, where the government would take over the healthcare sector. Uh, But in the end, you know, Venezuela is probably uh, 
and in Cuba, the, the most socialist countries right now, like Singapore, uh, in, in one of the ratings, the Fraser Institute ratings, is the least socialist place. And countries tend to move uh, in one direction or, or another uh, along uh, that path. The thing that I think is interesting is that in the U.S. we're really, really close to moving way, way down in the rankings. And, and to put it in perspective another way, with the uh, top marginal tax rate in the current Democratic proposal, that would give the U.S. the highest marginal tax rate in the OECD. Uh, and so absolutely we are sliding uh, in a direction that's really pretty far uh, uh, in the socialist direction, even vis-a-vis -vis European countries. So I, I want to just uh, push back and, and ask you to comment on some of the specific things that are in the, in the news. But I want to start by asking you about something that the leaders of America's largest and most successful corporations, uh, the Business Roundtable, uh, wrote back in 2019. They argued that the unhappiness, uh, disenfranchisement of the American middle class is so significant, uh, people argue that's the reason that Donald Trump got elected, that uh, corporations need to do something about that. They need to take more care for their workers, their communities. You'll remember the, the statement, I'm sure, but Jamie sure. Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, arguably the leading uh, financial uh, 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 spokesman in our country, said in announcing this, that the American dream is alive but fraying. And he argued that corporations need to take more responsibility for an outcome that's in, in the interests of all of our citizens. Is that the kind of thing that you think is sensible, a sensible response to what's going on, or do you see that as dangerous? You know, I think that it's certainly sensible uh, to acknowledge uh, the need for society to be more just. Uh, and. Uh, for the, whether the corporation is the, the right place to do that. I mean, sure, there would be opportunities for it. But basically, you know, I'm of the belief that corporations should profit maximize uh, and that profit maximizing corporations are like a key uh, linchpin of capitalism. And it's profit maximization that makes things efficient, drives productivity higher. And when productivity higher is higher, uh, then wages go higher. You know, um, when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, David, that we put out a, a report and then made a chapter in the economic report of the president on socialism. And, you know, one of the things that people on the left do right now is they very often say, oh, we just want America to be more like Scandinavia. And, and I would guess that you could sort of almost paraphrase uh, uh, Jamie Dimon's uh, statement as being we need to be more like Scandinavia. But the fact is that, the you know, socialism doesn't work. And, and, and when you pursue uh, strategies other than uh, profit maximizing, uh, maximization, then you don't maximize productivity and you don't maximize wages. And we got some data. I'm actually just going to look aside because I, I pulled it up for the interview. But, but if you look at it, um, Danish uh, people who work in the U.S. make 35% more uh, in uh, after-tax income than Danish people who live in Denmark. Uh, for Finnish people, it's 19%. Uh, for Icelandic people, it's 32%, Wait, and so on. So, and so that even the Scandinavians, when they move to the U.S., their standard of living skyrockets. So, so this idea that we can make a utopia, oh, I'm sorry, I have this uh, thing where my light goes on and off because I'm trying to protect the climate. Uh, and so anyway, it's back on now. If I, if I don't move, that happens. But anyway, so this idea that we will become like a, a utopia if we, if we mimic the um, European socialists is just incorrect. And, and, and I, I think, think that the corporate, the world, corporate say, 
Kevin, if I could just interrupt, I think what Jamie Dimon would say and what the, the many corporate leaders who signed that statement would say is that not that we should be more like Scandinavia, we should be more like America. America didn't used to have such extremes uh, of wealth and poverty. Uh, we used to have a strong middle class and, and that uh, has been badly harmed. So I, I think it isn't it misstating this to put it in terms of European uh, uh, social democracy? It's really a, a call to be more like the America that you and I grew up in in the 1950s and 60s. Right. I think the America that we grew up with uh, in the 50s and 60s was basically one where firms were profit maximizing. And, and I'll, I'll flip it around, like, you know, talk about poverty. You know, so Donald Trump comes in and pursues, you know, very capitalist policies, which I, I have a lot of inside detail in the book about, you know, what we were thinking in the Oval Office and, you know, how the things became law. And those policies had a massive positive effect on social justice. You know, uh, the number of people living in poverty dropped by more than six million, the biggest drop we've had since World War II. You know, income growth. We we said when the tax cuts were passed, you'd get four thousand dollars a year in income growth. We actually ended up uh, getting six thousand more. Uh, income inequality sky skyrocketed. Uh, you know, as before President Trump uh, came to office and dropped sharply uh, when he was in office. And so, so the point is not to criticize the objective. You know, I think that we should all celebrate that wage growth was higher for people in the bottom decile than the top decile you know, pre-COVID in the Trump administration, that poverty dropped by more under him than it had for any other president. We should all celebrate that. Uh, and, and I think that the reason why, like, like think of all the people that tell you income inequality is the number one issue. It's the number one policy issue. We've got to address income inequality. You know, where were those people when income inequality was was dropping? Wage growth for uh, middle class people is the most important is the most important thing. Blue collar wages is the most important thing. Well, well gosh, they were completely flat uh, during the Obama administration and they grew sharply. Uh, wage growth uh, grew, grew sharply after Trump. And, and, and so so I think that you then have to ask yourself, well, if those are really the objectives uh, of the people, uh, then first we should maybe be a little nicer to each other because hopefully, David, you agree that I share those objectives. I just think that the capitalist society is the thing that delivers it better. Uh, then, you know, basically, I think Trump's policies kind of proved that those things worked or at least provided additional evidence. You know, proof is a strong word. Uh, and, and, and so then you have to wonder, well, why, despite that, is everybody like throwing all those policies out the window right now? and proposing things like AOC and Bernie Sanders are proposing that take us very, very radically in a, in a different direction. Uh, give, you know, like, shouldn't you at least be curious about why income inequality declined under President Trump? You know, I have a well, strong well, theory of why it did. Um, you know, we'll and, get, and, we'll get, Kevin, we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to the specifics of the policies. I, I, I want to ask you about some, some particular specifics uh, that, that mm -hmm. are in the news. And you, as a as a prominent economist, uh, I'd love to have your comments on them. First, the G20 meeting in Rome yesterday did something really interesting, which was uh, uh, endorse a global minimum corporate tax of 15%. Uh, and Larry Summers, a prominent economist, I'm sure you've known him for years, argued in our paper this morning, this agreement is arguably the most significant international economic pact of the 21st century so far. It's built around a profoundly important principle. Countries should cooperate to raise corporate tax taxation, not compete to reduce it. And he argued that this is a triumph of Detroit over Davos. I'm very curious what you make of this yeah. move well, by well, countries the, together. The, the optimal tax, uh, 
theory is is, is very well developed. Um, Larry has a, a famous early paper uh, on it. And basically, uh, the optimal tax uh, system for any country is something that looks very much like a value-added tax. And so a tax on capital, a tax on um, corporate income has no place in, in an optimal tax system. And it doesn't mean that you have to like not tax the rich. You could have a very progressive consumption tax that so have really, really high taxes on Mark Zuckerberg and so on. But the corporate tax, the optimal corporate tax is zero. And so what's been happening in the world is that uh, countries all around the world have been shifting their uh, tax system to value-added taxes, except for the U.S., uh, and reducing their corporate taxes. So back in 94, the U.S. was uh, the last country on earth to increase the corporate tax. It just went from 34 to 35% under Bill Clinton. Uh, at the time, the OECD average was 39.6%. Now the OECD average is like 20%, and there's kind of a race to the bottom. But the, the race to the bottom is a good thing because what's happening is that countries are replacing inefficient tax codes with more efficient tax codes, and that's good for the prosperity of everybody in those countries. And so, uh, in, in fact, the typical country uh, in the OECD has, since 94, cut its corporate tax rate three times because once they do it, they see the economic growth, they see the wage growth, just like we had after uh, President Trump's experiment with it. And then they say, oh, I should do that again. And so so the problem is that uh, that there are you know, ideological people who think that you, you have to have a corporate tax, even though it has no uh, place really in an optimal tax design. Um, and then the U.S. itself has a really, really foolish system where we allow people to sort of park their money overseas in low tax countries and not pay tax on it in the U.S. until they bring it home. And so Larry's right that the U.S. tax system has fundamentally been a disaster uh, for U.S. workers because it gives uh, U.S. corporations a very strong incentive to locate activity overseas. But for me, the easy way to address that is what we did uh, with President Trump is just lower the rate so that you know the lower rates abroad don't look so attractive. Uh, and so we cut the rate to 21% from 35%, and then all of a sudden people had a much smaller uh, incentive to invest in uh, some other country. Now, uh, what the Biden administration wants to do is raise corporate taxes, despite the very positive evidence that we had uh, show showing how effective the tax cuts were uh, after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed in 2017. But if he does that, then once again, all the jobs are gonna flee uh, the United States, just like they did uh, during you know previous administrations, and so what they've been trying to do is strong arm other countries into lifting into lifting their taxes too, um, and um, I think that that's kind of a fool's errand. That people say they're going to do it, but in the end, people will defect because if everybody else has a high corporate tax and then you lower your corporate tax, uh, then all the businesses are going to move to your country. And if you look at all the um, economic growth that Ireland had, for example, by being a tax haven, you know that's the attractive outcome for a, for a country that's having a problem with its growth once everybody else agrees to do this. And so, so I predict that. Everyone's going to say nice things about this, but in the end, they're going to be defectors. The defectors are going to sort of blow up this uh, view where there's going to, you know, you can stop we'll, the international tax competition. We'll we'll see about about the defectors. So I, let me ask you about the the next thing um, in, in line for President Biden's trip abroad this week, and that and that's the meeting in Glasgow uh, of the United Nations Climate Summit. I noted earlier in our program that you made reference to. Uh, energy saving devices in your own home. So I take it from that that you think the, the danger of climate change is real and that you want to take a personal efforts to, to re reduce your footprint. Talk a, a little bit about the 
sensible economic policies to deal with this, specifically, if you sure. would, the carbon tax. Carbon tax, the more I look at this, seems the, the most effective and rational approach. But what do you think as an economist? Sure. You know, David, uh, you know, I guess we've sort of known each other on and off for a couple of decades. Uh, you might recall that way, way back uh, in the day when, when I uh, wrote the book, Dow 36,000, we passed 36,000 today uh, with your friend Jim Glassman. Uh, you know, that I was an advocate of a carbon tax, you know, way, way back. Uh, and and the thing that really bugs me, and it, and it gets back to the sort of senseless conflicts that we have in society that, you know, it's almost like the Hatfields and the McCoys rather than two political parties who care about their country trying to run the country is, the thing, the thing is that, that for climate change, uh, it's so simple. If you, if you have a carbon tax and then use the carbon tax revenue to reduce uh, distortionary taxes, uh, and so, for example, uh, if the Democrats went to the Republicans and say, tell you what, we'll eliminate the corporate tax if you let us have a carbon tax, uh, then you could, even if you don't believe in climate change, you could make the economy stronger because a carbon tax is sort of like a value added tax. It's kind of like a broad based uh, thing that isn't super distortionary. Uh, and, and so you could actually really improve the economy if you had a carbon tax and then you reduced uh, marginal tax rates along with it. That's something that's well established in the economic literature. And so the, the, the real heartbreak of it is that, that that's a deal that you, you would think that politics could produce. That the, you know, the Democrats would say, okay, guys, we'll, we'll impose a carbon tax and you Republicans, we know you don't like it, but we'll let you have the revenue and do, it, do with it what you want. Uh, and if you did that, then you'd make an enormous amount of progress. But instead, what happens is whenever there's a proposal uh, that comes up, like uh, back in the day, uh, Waxman-Markey, that in, in the end, it's just like one party trying to strong arm it through and keep all the revenue for themselves and, and so on. And, and so we haven't done the obvious policy. And, and I think it, it should be frustrating to everybody that we've made so little progress on it when the answer is kind of so obvious. Once again, a carbon tax plus reduced other taxes increases the uh, growth rate of the economy, even if you don't believe in climate change, you should take the deal. Uh, and so the fact I'm that we're not curious, doing it is a wonder. Given, given, Kevin, your, as you rightly say, your longstanding uh, advocacy of this, I'm curious whether you ever proposed it to President Trump. Uh, you know, I, I never, we had a heck of a lot of conversations, uh, but I never discussed climate change with him. It was just not a policy uh, that came up while we were, I mean, we had so many things. And again, in the book, you can look at all the things that somehow the Council of Economic Advisors that I got involved in from um, immigration uh, to Middle East peace, to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, to uh, deregulation. And uh, yeah, we our plate was really, really full. But no, I did not. Um, I did not ever uh, you know, meet with him and talk, talk about carbon taxes. So let me ask about this week's other big piece of uh, seemingly imminent uh, economic news, and that's likely congressional package, uh, a passage of the uh, 1.2 trillion, uh, roughly, infrastructure bill uh, and um, uh, social spending uh, bill, we sometimes refer to as the reconciliation bill, on the order of $1.75 trillion. Uh, I'm curious about the, the two elements of that uh, in the context first of uh, whether they're likely to enhance uh, some of the basic fundamentals that are necessary for our 
capitalist economy to thrive, what you think are mistakes in that package, what you think of the climate change provisions as somebody who cares deeply about, about that issue from what you've said. Just, just to talk us through your response to what's likely coming. Right, well, well again, on the infrastructure bill, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time working on infrastructure. I had a whole chapter in the first economic report of the president that, that my team and I wrote on infrastructure. Uh, we found that President Trump's infrastructure plan, which was quite a bit different from this bill we're looking at, would add maybe about a tenth of a percent per year to economic growth over the next decade. Uh, there was definitely positive growth effects uh, from it. And infrastructure in the U.S. is, you know, substandard in many places, and we could make the economy stronger if we improved it. The, the question is, you know, why is our infrastructure so poor? And I think that the problem is that politics uh, gets caught up in it. I guess, you know, we can't begrudge politics is how we run our country, but, but politics get, gets caught up in it and we make really irrational uh, choices. And so right now we have this terrible supply chain problem, but the infrastructure bill really doesn't do much at all uh, to help it, you know, that we're not going to really fix the supply chain problem by giving $88 billion to Amtrak. Um, and, and so, you know, my view is that infrastructure spending, I, I wrote a piece at National Review about this, that it's something that is probably like one of the better things that the government does with your money. And so even if you're a, a right-wing conservative, you shouldn't begrudge it too much. Uh, you could wish that it was smarter and better. Uh, but it feels like that never happens. And there's a, I have an episode of the book where I talk about my efforts on this, but there's this thing called the Jones Act, which is just like one of the most harmful regulations that there is on the books that pretty much makes it so that there's almost no shipping in the U.S. And so, you know, if you want to move something from one port to another port in the U.S., then it has to be a U.S.-made ship that's got a U.S. crew. And of course, uh, U.S.-made ships and U.S. crews are a lot more expensive than you know, the ships that everybody uses internationally. So there's basically, the U.S. has the lowest share of freight on water of any developed country because of the Jones Act. And I worked really, really hard uh, to get the Jones Act uh, overturned. I think I had President Trump uh, pretty much convinced about it, but in the end, the political forces supporting it are just too powerful. And so the problem I have is the infrastructure bill that you're looking at is sort of filled with, you know, patches when the big solutions that one to think of are just basically not there because they're politically impossible. And the social spending side of this, do you think there are portions of that as on climate change that will be helpful to uh, to our country, that will help the middle class uh, as is the stated intention? I, you know, I, I think the best way to help the middle class is the way that we did it during the Trump administration, which is to encourage businesses to expand, uh, to cut corporate taxes so that there's a big increase in capital formation that increases productivity that drives wages up. Um, you know, wage growth is picking up right now, but inflation is as well. In fact, real wages have declined uh, this year pretty sharply because prices have moved faster than wages. Um, I think that we're right now at a moment, a very dangerous moment, this is something else that Larry Summers has talked about, where basically government has thrown all this demand money at increasing demand uh, in part in COVID relief packages. Uh, and at the same time, the Biden administration is attacking supply. And so if you, you know, juice up demand and cut back on supply with a big corporate tax hike, then it's a recipe for stagflation. And I think that that's just about what we're starting to see in the data. You know, I think economic growth has just about ground to a halt. Um, I think, uh, you know, we had 2% growth in the third quarter, but it was all kind of inventories. And so that means the fourth quarter is looking like it could be 
even uh, no growth at all, uh, but really high inflation. And, and so for me, I think if that, that really hurts the middle class. And so that the macro solution to it is to increase uh, supply and not uh, reduce supply. We'll see what those uh, growth numbers look like. I, I, I think your forecast is a little bit of an outlier from, from what I see, but we'll We'll, we'll, we'll see. You, uh, Kevin, a number of times have said, and I, I couldn't agree more, that uh, we have a problem in our country in that our political debate is just so noisy and, and it's often not constructive. I want to ask you um, to speak frankly about uh, President Trump and the Trump administration and the Republican Party's side of that, um, like every American, you watch what happened on January 6th. And I'm just curious uh, about your own reactions as you watch that. What did you think was going on? What do you think we should do about that degree of really violent uh, polarization in the country? Yeah, the polarization of the country is is uh, terrible. Uh, and um, recall, I wasn't in the White House uh, on January 6th. Um, but the, you know, I do uh, mention quite a bit in the book, I talk about this, so this is the point about when I'm trying to fit Trump in, into like the broad swath of history. And and I think that basically one of the things that Schumpeter didn't expect, remember I said that uh, the universities would control the media and, the, and they would control respectability and people would be afraid to stand up for capitalist policies because they'd be marked as disreputable. That one of the things that Schumpeter didn't envision uh, was the internet. Uh, and Marshall McLuhan, who I write a lot about in the book as well, did look ahead uh, to the impact of the internet on things. And so, first of all, uh, you, you're not going to get just like a curated bit of news where basically the Harvard faculty tells everybody what to think, which maybe is what happened with every we all watching CBS News when we were growing up. But instead, there's basically a competition for our attention. And what um, McLuhan thought was that the competition for attention would make it so that more and more kind of rude and crass people would be very adept at capturing our attention. And so I think that uh, you know, a lot of uh, conservative friends, you know, one of the first persons to interview me in my office uh, when I went to the White House was George Will. And you know, I know George doesn't have very strong feelings for the president, but a lot of people have this view, oh, I wish that I could have those, that, those policies but why do you have to be so rude on Twitter? Um, and I think that you know that question basically, I think in some sense assumes away the problem. So, so the problem is that we're now in this competition for attention and the competition for attention is kind of driving us apart and making us meaner and meaner to each other because that's kind of more fun uh, for people to watch kind of like you know a car crash or something. So I think that that, you know, that is like something that's a major challenge for politicians going forward because, it, it, you know, it, and, and, you know, I don't want to insult anyone, but if you look at like how brilliant um, AOC is at getting attention on Twitter, you know, I think it's, it's a similar kind of thing. Like, so her, her policy proposals are, you know, very socialist and very, very uh, much consistent with the sort of ideas that I lay out in, in the book. And she does it with the sort of, you know, I guess, vigor uh, that's super attractive and interesting uh, and fun for people to watch uh, and takes the attention away from, you know, the more moderate sort of 19th 70s or 80s uh, Democrats. So, but Kevin, before we run out of time, because we're just about at the end of our, sure. our half hour, I want to ask you a, a, a brief uh, final uh, political question. One of the interesting things in the book is you got to know uh, Donald Trump pretty well. He started off yeah. uh, 
you know, I gather thinking you might be one of those globalists, uh, but but you ended up having a, a pretty good relationship. Um, do you think you, you noticed the globe uh, back there, right? <laughs> uh, so do you do you think um, based on what you know of him and your conversations, if you've had him, that he's going to run in 2024? And if he does, will you support him? Yes, uh, I, you know, I, I don't have any inside information on this. Uh, I did want to make it aside that, that it's true that when I got there, I took a lot of criticism from Breitbart and other places because people thought of me as sort of a globalist. And so just to sort of mess with everybody, I, I got this globe behind me and, and stuck it on my desk in the White House. And so whenever anyone came to my White House, they had to look at a globe. <laughs> and so, uh, but you know, despite that, I, I got I got along very well with the president. Um, I have very high regard for him. And if you look at the book, you'll see that when you're actually down at the sort of problem solving level, uh, that he did a good job of stimulating debate and picking the right answer. Uh, he also, there's a human side to him, which you really don't see on Twitter, which I mentioned in the book, where like, you know, one of, one of my colleagues got cancer and, you know, he sent a, a little note to, to the person, you know, saying, I hope you get, get well soon and so on. And, and so I think that, that what it was really like, that part of the book is going to be surprising for a lot of people because, you know, I, I, I really do think that, that, that he's this person on TV is quite a bit different from the person you see, you see so, in private. So what about um, I think he would be. I think he would be. I think that he would be a, a, a good president um, I, if he were to be reelected again. I think that um, like all new presidents, the first year, which you can read about in the book, is pretty chaotic. You know, going through uh, a number of people at a pretty high rate of speed. But by the end, uh, the the White House was really well organized. Had very strong processes. Uh, you know, and produce really good policies. And I think that if he were reelected, that would probably happen again. And without the so, sort of chaos of the year. Um, we've run out of our half hour. Um, this has been a, a good discussion. Um, I want to urge people to uh, take a look uh, at Kevin's book, um, which has a lot of interesting anecdotes about things that you've read about uh, elsewhere. Kevin, thank you for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.